This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com, and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, you can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 437 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Jason McCarthy. Now, Jason is a veteran of the Green Berets and also the co-founder of GORUCK. And what made this interview so unique is I got to go up to Gorok HQ and sit down with Jason and Emily and Rich and some other members of the team, go for a ruck on the beautiful Jacksonville Beach, and then sit down in their studio, be the interviewee on their podcast, and then interview Jason on mine. 
So we discussed a host of topics from his journey through the military, transitioning out, entrepreneurship, leadership, ownership, fitness in the tactical athlete, and so many more areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you, Jason McCarthy. Enjoy. So we're sitting here in the Go Ruck headquarters. I'm sitting with Jason. What is unusual about this is firstly, we did a ruck together. Then I was just honored enough to be a guest on your podcast. So we're using your equipment now and I'm interviewing you. So this is a brand new dynamic for me. So it's going to sound weird, but welcome to the show, even though I'm in your headquarters. <laughs> no, we, let's roll with it. It's, it's great, <laughs> right? It's great. Thanks so much. All right. Well, for people listening, where are we sitting right now geographically? We are in Jacksonville Beach, Florida, which is just the, we're actually on about the westernmost point on the East Coast. Think about that for a second, right? Just the way the coastline goes. And it's just the, it's the beach side of Jacksonville. So it's, it's great. It's a little slice of heaven. Don't tell everybody, but it's, it's great here. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. And I, we were talking before, and one of my favorite beaches is just a bit further south, but this whole coastline is absolutely stunning. Yeah, we're, we're fortunate. My, my parents moved here in 92, you know, new job and stuff like that for my stepdad and went to high school here and never thought I'd come back. But eventually, you know, it's, it's funny where you find humility sometimes. Absolutely. Which is the theme of our previous conversation. (laughs) All right. Well then I love to start chronologically. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I was born in Kettering, Ohio. Right. So that's Southern Ohio. My, my mom was 18 years old and five days when she had me. So she spent much of her, the overwhelming majority of her 17th year on, on the earth with, with me growing inside of her. You know, she, she graduated high school a little bit early and then kind of went into hiding her, her terms. So she lived at my dad's, my grandparents' house, my dad's parents' house, where I would later spend a lot of summers. And it was just kind of, you know, you're not supposed to get pregnant when you're 17. And it was, it was certainly hard on her. My parents, they got married and later got divorced and, and all that jazz. So grew up like that. And, and, um, but ultimately, you know, my parents were really young. And so the blessing that I had in my life was that there were my grandparents and the people that were around, everybody wanted to look after me. They were worried about me. So they wanted to make sure that I was okay. And I was really fortunate and blessed eternally to have so many people that, that cared about my well-being at the time. So n- no siblings until later on when my mom got remarried and, and then have a sister and a brother with, they have different, different dad. Right. Now, when she said she was in hiding, your grandparents obviously were supportive because they're taking care of you. Who is she in hi- Who is she worried about? So there was a riff with her parents, okay. You know, while she was pregnant, I mean, it's 
it's easy to kind of psychoanalyze it, right? I mean, it's kind of shame. Shame's a two-way street at, at times as well, right? Like, I shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done this. Like, the word should is a very dangerous word, you know? And so there was a riff there that was that I cleared up for them, not by being anything, but just by being. And so when I was born, it, it, it came around really quickly. And my both sides of both sets of grandparents were a hundred out of a hundred supportive. I mean, my mom, my mom grew up really, she was a really, really good tennis player, right? Like number one in the, in the region growing up and, and would later she quit tennis to party and, you know, have a kid, right? I think the partying came first. The, the kid came next, <laughs> she right? to a kid. <laughs> and uh, she, she put down her tennis rackets, which was kind of like a problem with, with her parents, my grandparents, because, you know, she was good, right? She's gifted. But it, it, it kind of restabilized. She had to reinvent herself with a kid this time and picked up the, the sticks again and went to junior college right in town, a place called Sinclair Community College, and won junior college nationals for tennis. And then University of Florida gave her a, a scholarship to go down to Gainesville. So I moved to Gainesville with my mom and when, when she was down there playing tennis. So it was, uh, you know, looking back and shoot, while I was there, I knew how lucky I was. I mean, I just loved my mom. So it was, it was a blessing to get to spend that much quality time with her. Beautiful. She moved to my school. I'm a gator too. So there we go. Good school. Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> So what about athletics? I mean, you ended up obviously at a high level in the tactical space. Were you a sportsman when you were young? Yeah. So I was always trying to play everything. I mean, I played a lot of soccer growing up and then I played basketball and I, and I always had a, a tennis racket in my hand. And, and so, you know, I just kind of bounced around and was pretty fortunate from the standpoint of it, it wasn't quite as much driving around all across town in a minivan to all these scheduled stuff. I mean, there was some pick up stuff here. And then there was a fair amount of scheduled games and stuff, but eventually I ended up being better at tennis than, than all the others. So I played through high school and then I played at, at college as well in, in Atlanta. And then, um, yeah. And the most rewarding part of that was I, I lost some love for tennis, the more individualistic it got, right? I mean, tennis parents are kind of a thing and I, that, that, that was not the best part of tennis. And the older you get, the kind of, it just gets worse for some reason, or, or you're just aware of it more. And so once I got onto playing on the high school team, that was a lot more fun because there was camaraderie, you know, back then it was bus rides and, you know, we're going down to play PK young or whatever. We're going down to some school in Gainesville and we're stopping, you know, and having some dinner at pizza hut buffet on the way back. And everyone's just behaving terribly, basically, you know, I mean, it was just, it, it was just, it was a place where you could, you know, just be a kid trying to find yourself and, but you're doing something cool. Right. You know? And so that was, that was great. And college was just another level. I mean, that's, that was the most rewarding part of college was being on the tennis team. Now, what's your perspective on being a player in a sport where ultimately at one time it's just you on the court and, and I kind of parallel this to like martial arts you'd be part of a taekwondo team for example you're part of a team but you're obviously acutely aware of your own individual performance not only on that court but how that then affects a team I liked that a lot more than this just being about me 
right? I mean, you know, I was, I don't like to lose. I, I, I don't like to lose more than I enjoy winning, if that makes sense, right? And, and so that was a huge motivator because what I found out over the, over the course of my lifetime at, at that time and then looking back is, man, I worked really, really hard to be above average. I mean, I was, I was okay, right? But I wasn't my mom on a full ride at a D1 school, right? I, I wasn't, and this just wasn't something that I, I couldn't have worked any harder, you know? And I look back and look, I mean, I'm, I'm a lot taller than both my parents were, you know, I, I went, I had Osgood Schlatter's. I grew three inches in college. You talked about being a late bloomer. I was a late bloomer, right? And all these other guys that I'm playing against, you know, they have all their coordination for all the time that they're in, in playing tennis and they're, that's who I'm playing against. And I'm kind of, you know, just a little bit still finding myself, not even just emotionally, which you all are, we all are at that age, but physically, I mean, I, it's, it just was a lot going on. And so, you know, that's a disadvantage that ultimately helped me. It helped me in the long run, but it's just, it's awkward in the short run. And you don't know that you're going through this. It's not like, oh, I'm not able to make the gains, no matter how much work I put in, that they are because I, I just thought, well, I'm not as talented or whatever, right? And that's, sometimes there's people that are just hugely talented, awesome, right? The, the rest of the 99.99% of us, it's, it's other factors. And for me, you know, I worked really hard and I'm really proud that I did because that was the that's what I really got out of that time was just the commitment to, to the team and to doing my part. Right. Now you mentioned it when we did the other conversation, um, the importance of mentors, did you have either family members or people around you in the military or, and, or were there people that just regardless of military experience were influential in your life aside from your parents and your grandparents? My grandparents were certainly the the most. I mean, my you know my mom was just around. I was around my mom all the time. You know, besides, yeah, I mean, you know, I was kind of raised by committee almost. I mean, not to take anything away from my mom or or my dad because they they wanted the help. But as I start to think about some of the moves, you know, it was started in Ohio, moved to Gainesville. My mom got remarried. We moved to Dallas because my stepdad was finishing up with college and then working in, in, in Dallas. And then we moved to Nashville and then we moved back to Dallas and then we moved to Jacksonville beach. Well, we moved to just South of here. And, you know, my mom getting remarried gave, gave me a third, a third family. We were really close, you know? And, and so I, I got a third set of grandparents that lived here and they were the only set that lived here. And so I would end up spending a lot more time with them than I did, you know, with, a lot of peers. And it, it's because I, that was comfortable for me. You know, I, I knew what it was like. It was a safe, safe place, you know, and at a time when life was a little awkward or whatever the case may be. Right. And, and that was, that was great to have them. And I, I got a lot of perspective from them as well. And, you know, it's joining the military was not something that was, you know, there weren't a lot of close mentors around me that needed to guide that. I could have done it a little bit better. I, I, 
I just kept it a secret, you know, and it was like, this is what, this is what a man needs to do now. Right. <laughs> and look, it, it worked out and it would, wouldn't have deterred it, but I probably could have done things a little bit, probably could have learned a little bit more, but that just wasn't where I wasn't around that. You know, I, I didn't grow up with, with just, I didn't grow up on a base anywhere. I didn't grow up with people telling war stories or me knowing that they had war stories. They just weren't telling them. Like I, that just wasn't, I was not destined to go into the military or even to serve in, in that capacity un, until I was. So walk me through whatever you were wanting to be high school or college and then how you found yourself recruiting. I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, which was a problem, right? I, I would eventually graduate May of 2001 with an economics degree from, from Emory university in Atlanta. And you know, that was really, really hard. You're, you're supposed to be a man and you're supposed to have these things figured out and you're supposed to know, supposed to know, oh, I've got this now. I know what I'm going to do. And I just didn't. I mean, I, I applied to some places, but not really. I mean, I, all the big kind of consulting firms and all this stuff. I, I really, I was really, really comfortable with the idea of paying my dues, right? Work really hard. Just, I, I just didn't know where where to do that. And I wasn't extremely motivated by money, kind of wasn't a thing. So, you know, the, the towers falling was, was the thing that provided clarity. And then, you know, started looking into other places, looked at the CIA, looked at some other, at, at some of the other alphabet soup agencies. Those processes are a long time, right? It's not like all hands on deck where everybody's going, right? I mean, they're, they're hiring, they ramped it up. I mean, God bless the, the folks in HR at a place like the agency where they have to ramp it up so quickly after, after 9-11, certainly by, by their standards. But I learned really quickly that there was going to be a process to all of this. And you know, the, the agency was not the best place for me at that time. I needed to go serve in, in the armed forces. And that's just where my heart was. And I, I kept asking about the paramilitary side of the agency after, after Mike Spann died. And he died early on, right? And and you know this guy in in the interview process at the agency, I'd been interviewing them for almost a year, maybe something like that. He's like, "Look, we don't hire, we don't hire for the paramilitary branch off the street. They they come in from other units, special operations, and otherwise we recruit them there, and then they come here." I'm like, "All right, well, thanks for the last year, guys." <laughs> and, and now I know what I need to go do, though. You didn't get the email. <laughs> yeah. Like you don't know anything. And so, so yeah, so then that, then I had to almost start over and started looking at Marines going and become an infantry officer. there. highly competitive. This was not a go to war or go to jail thing. This is very much highly, highly competitive. A lot of people wanted to serve our country and you know, that that's left out in, in a lot of the discourse today. I mean, people will serve if you ask them to, they just need to be inspired. They need a mission to serve. So that kept not working. Then the invasion of Iraq was in, in 2003, you know, in, in April and, and speaking completely apolitically, I mean, it's an easy thing to bash on now, like we shouldn't have gone or whatever, but the, the, the overriding, that's not what I want to emphasize. What I want to emphasize is that the overriding sentiment for me was that the wars were passing me by. Like my, this call to service that I had heard, right. That it was passing me by. And then I would regret it for the rest of my life if I didn't answer that call. And so then it was just, I, I enlisted in the army with a kind of a contract. 
I, I set myself up for some opportunity here. I got a contract that would guarantee me slots through the special forces pipeline. Now, now all I have to do is pass. So you knew right before you even signed up that that was the path you wanted to take. That was the pipeline. Yes. I mean, it was, what's the most tip of the spear thing I can possibly do. Right. I mean, I, first I thought it was paramilitary branch of, of the agency. So I went down that path and then it's, you know, the, the Marine OCS route, they're the ones invading, you know, like, Oh, go be in force recon in, in, in the Marines. Awesome profession. Awesome dudes are in there. I know a bunch of them now, like great community. Right. And then, you know, it's the, you go back though, and then it's all right. Well, it was the horse soldiers that were the first into Afghanistan, right? You know, those, those few teams of green berets that, that worked with the Northern Alliance to overthrow the Taliban in the boneyard of the Soviet empire in 60 days. Well, those guys were green berets. Awesome. Like that, that sounds good. No, no consolation prize here whatsoever. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll throw my hat in that ring and I'll, I'll see if I measure up. Okay. Well, that, that's a great segue. So you have a young man who has traveled around a lot, um, has a lot of strong bonds with his grandparents. His main sport was tennis. So tell me about your physical and mental journey through boot camp and then through the selection process. And, you know, what, which of all those different factors do you think made you successful when so many people rang the bell? My why was really strong. I mean, uh, there was the rage from the towers falling. And then it was probably a blessing in disguise that it, it took a couple years for me to sign up because it just grew, right? Like this sense that I owed, it, it grew, it matured is, is a better way to say it. And so I had spent a lot of time on physical fitness. I mean, between, and, and I, I, I trained a lot. I worked really hard in, in college. I was in really good shape like that, you know, cardiovascular and, and all that stuff. I mean, tennis is not, you don't need a, a huge amount of strength, but anything that you could, I got, I got really into swimming in, in big ways to kind of offset some of the, 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 the joint pounding that happens with tennis, you know, um, you know, you, you go side to side for hours every single day. It's not super easy right? I got tennis elbow. I got problems with my shoulders. I had, you know, roll ankles, all this stuff. So I took up swimming. I started swimming a mile multiple times a week. Right. But point is, is, is just that I'd really said, okay, I know that this is going to be physical and I know that I can control nothing, nothing once you sign up, but I can control this. Even a gorilla can show up ready to, to do these kinds of things. You just have to put the, the work in. There's no shortcuts. Now, I trained like a fool. I didn't know what I was getting into per se. I mean, the amount of running that I did and I did a ton of swimming because I was also looking at the seals, right? A lot of running. I'm talking about in between college and when I ultimately enlisted in October of 2003. And, you know, I did a ton of work in, in the gym, right? I mean, music blasting in my ear, right? you know, just hate and rage, Metallica, Megadeth. Awesome. <laughs> you know, like one more rep. Yeah. And it was, it was great like that. You know, um, I, I think the actual training, there was just an enormous volume of work that I did. I mean, working out two, two times a day, plus an hour, either in the pool or, or running or something. I mean, a, a lot of work, you know, and 
it was more just this hardening of the mind that this is what it takes. Like you have to have this commitment, this dedication. It wasn't about, you know, how many pushups I could do at that time or what my bench press was. And I thought all that stuff really, really mattered. So it just, it, it, it hardened my why and the actual, the actual tests that were put before me were, were different. I mean, I, I learned really quickly that, you know, that you don't spend any time in a gym. It's not a thing. So you really don't need to train in one. You can augment your training, but not one trying to think. No, there was not one test. The only time anything was indoors, there was this pool on Fort Bragg and you had to swim 50 meters or something in full battle rattle or full combat uniform, whatever. Like that's, that's the only thing that was ever inside. You're outside. It's just moving rucksacks and heavy objects and logs and rifle PT and all this stuff. And it just goes on and on and on forever and ever. The, the pine forests of North Carolina are never ending. And so really what it came down to is I had a strong cardiovascular base and that's a better place to come from than just being able to do strength stuff because the, this, the training that I was in was two and a half years. That's how long it took to graduate. And, and so, you know, the, the hardest parts for me were not the, the physical stuff. It was the, you're just drinking from a fire hose, all this tactical stuff, and then you have to apply it. And I had no idea. I mean, you know, I'm, I loved GI Joe as a kid. That's about as much tactics as, as I had. And, and I was at no great disadvantage compared to so many others. It's just, you know, it, it's just hard. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Other people pick up certain things better. I picked up other, other things better, but it's just, you know, you're learning all about Vietnam era tactics and you're doing it at schools that are a month long and you're, they, they beat you up without, it's, it's not, they beat you up, not in ways that you imagine though, right? It's just, it's just an endurance that it's just constant. You always have a ruck on your back. You're always moving and it's just slow. It's like, it's called the rucksack in, in that it's called the tick, right? It just sucks the life out of you. From, from while it's on your back because it's just over and over and over and over. And, and so you have to endure. And, you know, the, th- those were some of the hardest, the hardest times. I mean, specifically our version of Ranger School is called Small Unit Tactics. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed selection. I, you know, I, I've heard that from a few more people t- enough to say it without com- being completely crazy. But it's it's primarily you with the rucksack and it's it's land navigation. Go find this point, go find that point, you know. And it, there's a purity to it. It's just you. You control your own destiny by and large. You know the the stars are out, the moon's out, wh- whatever the case may be, and it feels really good at a certain point, right? And then there was just this. The next phase was you got it. The the rucksack weight doubles. The, and, and you've got to start patrolling together. And that was just, that was harder. I mean, I was of no rank, right? I'd, some, some guys had come from the infantry. I was coming off the street. And so no rank and, and just didn't really, didn't catch on as quickly as I, I wish I would have. But, you know, the physical fitness side made it easier to, I could always keep up. So I had to learn how to, how to lead like that. I had not done, I had to, Confidence is a perishable thing and you have to earn it. And so in that case, that's, that's where I had to dig deep and, and earn it. Now with the, the ruck, 
you know, you said it was an integral part of the training from the moment you got in. Was that an area you prepared? Had you been rucking prior to that? I had no idea what rucking was <laughs> until basic training when they gave us a ruck. And this is, you know, halfway through basic training or advanced infantry training. Because of me, they were just kind of the same. And like, all right, here's your ruck. Put it on, fill it up. You know, oh, dark 30, whatever. We're going, we're going on a little march, right? And it was, you know right face forward march and then just kind of picks up and then it's you know it turned into the the slinky where nobody's staying together and you know there's drill sergeants yelling at people and it just it was and I was I was comfortable in that environment right I mean I the the cardio side was not a problem for me but I had a long ways to go to learn anything about that and you learn quickly because those rucksacks are not built for comfort right they're built for sort of durability and and we had these we had these uh, LBE, these these like weight vests, not not weight vests, like uh, belts that we had on. Gosh, it's a good thing when you start forgetting acronyms. I think, but it's it's like a nylon belt, and it has suspenders, and it goes over right, and you wear it, and you have your your water bottles or your whatever your your two quarts are or your one quarts are are there, but they had these meat hooks that these metal hooks is how it attaches with the sort of suspenders. And then you have to put the rucksack on top of that. And right in that area in the lower back, it just digs in. There's, you, you have to, your skin has to get harder. And I still have scars there. I mean, just from all the miles and miles and, you know, that's not a complaint. That's just a fact. Right. And so there's just little tips and tricks that you learn through pain and you just want to make your life just a little bit more comfortable. And I don't know how many miles you do with a rucksack on in, in all that training, but in the, the years of training, it's, it's very, very significant. I mean, you in that rucksack, you, you get to a point where you feel almost naked without it, right? Like it's, it's weird to not have your rucksack on. Oh, I still, when I'm standing still, I still rock my hips back and forth. I've been retired two years and really didn't see a huge amount of fire. The very last department I was in. But that's because our packs have an alarm. So if you keep shaking your ass, it doesn't go off. And I was talking the other day and I was like, I'm still doing it. <laughs> so yeah, I can totally relate. It's ingrained in, you know. <laughs> so one thing we talked about in our conversation before was the the maintaining the bar. And obviously the special operations, special forces are a group of men and women that that seems to be ever apparent. So how was that bar maintained um, and how... You know, through attrition, how did you get rid of the people that shouldn't have been there or that that moment weren't ready to rephrase it? You mean in the training process? Yeah, through the whole training and selection. Yeah, I mean, you know, that that's kind of the tribal nature of, of special forces is that the standards are passed down across the generations. I mean, you got people like Rich who were in the early stages of, of some of them. Well, they're, you know, they're taking from standards that have been passed down from this unit and what should a ruck time be? And then they go validate it themselves. And then there's a little fudge factor and then you've sort of got it. Well, special forces has decades at this point of knowing what the standards should be and they haven't changed that much. Right. And so, you know, there's certain things where if, if you can't do a 10 mile ruck with 45 pounds dry on your back, or you can't do the land navigation alone by yourself with a map and compass. If you can't do those types of things, then those are just hard. You, you did not meet the standard. This, these are the standards that this community 
requires and it's you're you're gone. That happens. Happens a lot. The the other things are just it just wears on you. And it's not the you can look around and now I, I you almost get to the point later in, in life where you can you can just look someone in the eyes. Just give me one fraction of a second and I'll tell you if they're gonna pass or not. And I, I won't say that's something that you can absolutely do. I'm not you know, because it's not absolute, right? But you do get to be a better judge just by looking at that. At, at that stage, as as a candidate, when you look around, you just see people that are bigger, stronger. Then you see people that are faster. You, you're constantly, competition is just weighing on you all the time because it's just do your best. Unknown distance, unknown time standard, do your best. I mean, th- there's a real mental aspect to that that some people cannot thrive in. If you tell them this is a 12-mile run and you have to do it in six-minute miles, I mean, they'd prefer that, right? Then they know. Well, that's not life, and that's really not life in Special Forces. You, you have to be able to adapt. So that's built in. I mean, Special Forces selection is there's a whiteboard. They write on the whiteboard stuff, and then that's how that's what it is. There's not yelling and screaming. The, the yelling and screaming is what you're doing inside your own head. Not, not what's going on from them. There's, there's a six hour block of log PT and, and rifle PT. And that's what everyone thinks special forces selection is. Cause that's, that's the pictures that you'll see. That's not it. Cause the pictures that they would show are, are boring. I mean, it's just you and your map and compass out in the pine forests of North Carolina fighting through draws and, you know, wait a minute vines. And I mean, at its worst, right. You're, you're turned around completely in some wait a minute vines. They're 360 degrees wrapped around you because you made some terrible decision to try to go find this shortcut through, through the worst draw that there was. Oh, I'm going to save myself the mileage, right? So you're in there and you, you don't know anything. You're pulling your compass out to try to figure out what direction anything is. And still you have to fight your way out by you take your rucksack off. You drop your rucksack. You pick your rucksack up. You clean it, I guess. And then you press it. You, it's like toss it forward as much as you can. And, and if it's like at your worst, you're just about hitting your own feet unless you really drive some, some power behind it. Right. And you have to just fight your way out through that brush. And it sounds insane, right? Like, how does that happen? Are you a fool? I've never met a green boy that didn't do this, right? You're so, and you just want to scream in, in like, and nobody cares. See, that's the thing. Nobody cares. You may have come with a person or two, but it's, everyone is so spread out and everyone's, you know, you're, you're a number when you show up and the cadre don't, you don't, there's no discourse. There's no teaching, right? The rucksack is the teacher. Do, do it or don't. This is the standard. And so, you know, you have a lot of conversations with yourself and ultimately people self-select like this isn't for me. And and I think that's a I think that's a healthy thing. I'm not here to celebrate that kind of failure. I, I am here to say that people should find the things that they're they're good at. And sometimes the things that you you want to be good at are not the things that you're you're best at. And so you have to preserve a strong culture if you want a, a strong organization. And Special Forces does an extraordinary job of of doing that. And it's based on real world functionality. So the weight of the pack is 
roughly what you would need to carry in certain real world situations and the length of the marches and times. So, so the reason I asked that one of the issues I think in, in fire, for example, is that bars come down and people are kind of trying to reinvent the wheel. Oh, we should make the fitness test, you know, this, this many deadlifts or whatever. When the, the, the great equalizer is what we've done traditionally, carry the ladder, pull the hose, because those are the tools of the job, male, female, you know, whatever. Um, and so by holding that bar high, again, there's self-selection in, in the good hiring processes of good departments. Um, and no one can say it's unfair because you're basically just doing what's asked, you know, what you're being asked to do. Yeah. So you've opened up a can of worms here. So by and large, the, the standards, the volume of rucking with the weight of rucking that you have in training is, is significantly higher than what you'll see in, in combat. Right. So, and, and I, I say you've opened up a can of worms because there's always this tendency in the military to, to bring more stuff, right? The special forces curse means however this big, the size of the rucksack is, you'll fill it. And when you start to bring all of this stuff, it's about commanders. And, and this is army macro. I'm not dialing in on, on anybody of, on, that I served with. This was not our, our mission per se. It's more just, there's this idea that you have to be able to prevent all risks. And in order to do that, you need to have so much stuff all the time. And it's always more like you need more 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 more. And that's just not always the answer. Sometimes the way that you mitigate risk is, is with that thing between your ears, right? And, and by working better together and cross-loading. And sometimes speed is security. So the, the security of speed means you can move faster if you have less stuff. And, and that's being, this is being challenged with some of, of what kind of risk we're, we're willing to assume, you know, like this is what you must carry. Special forces doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like the generals are saying you, you must carry this. It's just kind of not a thing, you know, at, at the, at the tactical level, the, the detachment commander and really the, the team sergeant kind of sets the standards. Like this is the packing list. This is what you'll bring. And, and there's a wealth of experience for, from those, those team sergeants. Um, so, I mean, for some perspective, the, the culminating exercise in special forces training is called Robin Sage. And it's a, it's a mock war, right? Spread out over unconventional warfare, spread out across the state of North Carolina. You move in, you, you link up with partisan forces, you're doing mock raids on, you know, downtowns, you're, you're sleeping in barns, you're, you know, linking up with a, a, a mock G chief, sort of what, you know, the guys would have faced when they had to link up with a partisan at, at, uh, the Northern Alliance to go defeat the Taliban. Right. And the infill on that was we had to jump in rucks were minimum 125 pounds. So you're, you're waddling like a penguin at best out to, to get on the aircraft. Then you're, you land and you're like, thank God my legs are still here. <laughs> right. That's and, a lot of weight to land with. And then it was, it was, it was at least 18 hours of infiltration with a 125 pound rucksack. I mean, it's, that is the single worst physical thing I've ever done. I mean, just excruciating. Every step is just miserable. 
you know? And, and so that is, I've heard of similar things, but I haven't heard of it at that degree of weight in, in combat anymore. Right. I mean, like you don't have that sustained like that, which is good. The training should be harder. Now, other things about combat are, are significantly harder, but that part of it, I mean, there, there's a physical standard and there's always moaning about the standards are dropping, the standards are dropping because the course is changing and everyone was in the last hard course. And, you know, you have to have some leaders that are sort of say, well, this is what we need to do in order to, to modernize what this is. And you still have to preserve what the standards are. And if you never try anything new, if, if, you know, if, if the pipeline goes from two years and then it's like, well, this isn't enough. It needs to go to three. And well, the rucksacks, 125 pounds isn't enough. It needs to go to 150. And I mean, at some point. <laughs> you got a bunch of people lying with broken legs. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, what's the right, what's the right balance? Cause it is possible to go too far. Right. And, you know, so I, I'm not here sitting and saying I was in the last hard class. I'm the, I'm just proud to have served in, in the regiment and, and I'm, I'm really proud to be associated with that. And the standards that, that I went through that I saw the guys around me go through, I mean, it's, it was a thing. Well, it's interesting. Obviously we'll, we'll circle around when it comes to go rug, but I mean, hearing your introduction to, to the ruck. Um, so tell me about your deployment. Um, what I really like to draw from my guests is, you know, I'm a civilian, obviously I'm a responder, but I'm a civilian when it comes to the military side. And I say this every time, we're, we're often given two polarizing views of war through, you know, media, whatever it is. One is kind of the kill them, kill them all, let God sort them out philosophy. And one is the, you know, baby killer philosophy, you know. So what I love to hear is the stories of when these men and women got into, you know, wherever they were deployed if they had an uh, not even an aha moment when when they saw some of the horrific things that were happening in that country more often than not to the civilians of that country where they realized regardless of politics that got me to where i am now there there is there, there is good to be done by us being here did you have any kind of moment like that where you first saw an atrocity or or, or you know something that kind of quote unquote justified your own personal um, you know, journey there. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to Iraq and I, I went to Iraq proudly with the guys that I was going with. You know, I, I'll couch this with, I, I signed up to go to Afghanistan. I, I wanted to go, I wanted to go after Al Qaeda. I wanted to go after the Taliban. And ultimately it, it wasn't about me. It's not about me. And you go where your country sends you. And I'm, I'm, proud to have gone to Iraq with the guys that I went with. The, the slow thing that was going on internally in my head was there's, you have to overcome this kind of fear of death. You have to learn how to just fight through it. And it's, you have a mission and you have to do it. And what you learn is that if you sit and, and are afraid to die, you can't actually do the job. You're just so preoccupied that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So you have to learn how to, how to do that. And so, you know, the, being on the team, the guys around you, you draw strength from that. That was, that was a necessary part of, of anything that came out of my time in, in Iraq. And 
you know, our, our, our general mission, and I was the low guy on the team, by the way, right? Our, our general mission in, in Iraq was to work by, with, and through the, the local partner forces. We were in, in our mission set, we were working, so we were working with the, the police force and train them up, make them better so that they can do the job themselves, right? That, that's the textbook answer. Now, we were pretty shielded because this was 2007. It was bad there, but there was provincial Iraqi, um, pick provinces is what it was, provincial Iraqi control provinces where they had, you know, control over everything. And, you know, we were kind of able to do anything only at their, their pleasure, right? Whereas before it was kind of not like that. And which is good. That's, that's called progress. But they were pretty standoffish. And so we didn't have that much to do with them per se. Like we weren't out in the village. We weren't passing candy out. We weren't doing any of, of that kind of stuff. And then they got themselves in, into a bind because, you know, the, the cleric in Sadr City had sent down allegedly thousands of, of fighters down to, down to the city to, to assassinate the, the police chief, which they failed to do. And, and then to, you know, just institute martial law in the town. I mean, it just sounds crazy, right? It's like not something that happens in America, right? Like someone just decides, Hey, we're going to have a, we have ourselves a good little revolution down there and we're just going to take over the town. Right. And, and so that's when we saw some, some fighting with the force and, and that became necessary to build rapport with with them, like when they respect power, they respect force. And we were able to help them project that onto the, the bad guys. I mean, this, this is not really a, a very gray area. Like everyone in that town that was shooting at us that night was bad. Like that's, that's the deal, you know? And so what happened out of, out of that was just more of the more of the the friendships that occurred with the men and with the Iraqis that that we had served with and and just our our general camaraderie went up our our training of them went up their responsiveness to up went up because we'd save their asses too right you bring the air force and the the gun trucks and rescue a bunch of them that are dying and bleeding out in a hospital that are pinned down and and then you go on a, a hunting party all over town looking for the bad ones, because if you don't, then they're just going to regroup and, and come at you with more organization. So in, in this case, it's like in matters of violence, offense is safer, that it's, it's something that your training teaches you and it's exactly right. And that, and that, that was our job. And so we, we had to lead our partner forces, you know, that, that was, that, that's what we did. And so, you know, the, there's not a lot of, of time in the villages or anything up to that point. But what we did notice was after that, you know, they would bring their, we did a, a giant feast, right, with them. There, there was just a lot more camaraderie. And, you know, I think the, the, the most negative parts of, of day-to-day life that I just saw through, you know, the, the really small window of the Humvee or just walking around in, in various parts. It's, it's just people just throw their trash around like it doesn't, like they don't care about anything where they live. It just, it's just constant. There's just trash everywhere. You know, if someone's got a wall, 
it's, it's to keep people out. Right. And then you just throw your trash over the wall and it's gone. You know, that that's not a part that I enjoyed being around the, the parts that were more interesting was the camaraderie that we developed over time. Cause we still had another six months or so with, um, with our guys and, you know, we had them onto our base, right? We've done with a mission and we bring them into the chow hall and they're like, just looking not great. Nobody smells good, you know? And, and like the rest of the army sort of put off by, you know, uniforms that aren't perfectly starched and all this stuff. And now you've got these other guys that aren't, aren't even American there, but you know, these are our guys. And so that's where, that's where the, the human element of this becomes the most relevant is, you know, we fought together. They were on our team and, and that is, that is stuck with me, you know, for, for a long time. So th- there is an element of, you know, just our shared humanity, if, if that makes sense. Right. Like they're, they're Iraqi, they're in this country. They're not choosing to live in this place where people, you know, throw their trash everywhere and, and have kind of like almost contempt or just don't care or something. Right. I, I, I can't relate to it as much. They didn't choose to be born there, but here we are on the same mission at the same time going after bad guys who cares about the politics, right? There's something that's just so, it's so eternal about those kinds of, of operations and those missions. And you just, you, you have this kind of lifelong bond with those people. And so as I look for the good that comes out of this, you know, it starts with the guys that I was on, on the team with, and then it, and then it branches out to the Iraqis that we fought with. And then it branches out to, you know, the, the meals that we shared, they brought their, you know, they, they brought the, their wives and daughters and moms who had baked this or cooked this enormous feast for us of, of local, local food. And, and it was, it was great. Nobody got sick. It was so great. Right. And, uh, you know, there, you learn at a certain point that you're white and you're American and you're never going to be able to immerse yourself. Right. So you take what you can. And when you look another man in, in the eyes and you're, you're there to help and he knows you're there to help and you fought together and there, there's just a shared humanity to that. Beautiful. No, and that's why I love asking this question because that we don't get that. You know, you just spent, you know, several minutes explaining that one moment, that one, you know, uh, firefight that you had and the hunt and then, you know, the, the kind of ripple effect of that. But these aren't the stories that are portrayed. And I think another interesting thing that I pulled from your conversation with Jocko that I listened to on the way up here was you just almost said in passing, well, when there's people on the roof, you don't know, they're not necessarily snipers. You said there's a lot of families that just spend time on the roof because it's cool up there. And I think that's another picture that we have to paint for the, you know, those of us have never served in the military capacity is again, you take world war one, perfect example, you know who the enemy is, the other trench over there, you know, the guys with the funny helmets, whereas now, whether it's Afghanistan or Iraq, you have all these combatants dressed exactly the same way. And I'd never heard that said, but even on a rooftop, just because someone's lying on a rooftop doesn't mean that they are an enemy sniper. So if you wouldn't mind, just kind of paint that picture about, you know, why, why are these families on the rooftop and, and, and what's that like for you guys on the ground as far as trying to figure out who's who? 
Yeah. So, I mean, if you go into a house in, in Iraq, it's, it's full, right? I mean, it, these people aren't living as, as we've established in America or the West where, you know, Johnny's got his own bedroom and, you know, all this, all this privacy, it doesn't exist, right? Part of it is an, is, is an economics thing for sure. It just, this is how, this is how they live. And, and so there's a lot of people in every, every house and, you know, the, the rooftop is, is better. It's, it's hot there. I mean, it's really hot. And at night when it's a hundred degrees, it's still cool. It's weird because when it gets so hot during the day, it's the, it's the temperature differences. When someone told me that before I went, I was like, oh, you're crazy, man. And I'm there and at night I've got, it's, it's a hundred degrees and I've got, you know, a fleece and a sweatshirt on both when I, when I'm outside. I mean, it's nuts, right? And so it feels great to be outside. So all the rooftops are, are full, right? I mean, it's full of people sleeping. And so when, when you're going around and my job was to, to coordinate with the aircraft, right? So the aircraft do, they do a couple of great things. God bless the air force. One, which you see a lot of is, is, you know, yes, in the movies, yes, they drop bombs. And, and yes, we did that. Right. But the other part is they're your eyes. I mean, they, they can see they're looking down. Now they can't see everything that you can from ground level. That's why you're a team and, and they're there to support you. So you're asking them if they see something, they're going to tell you. Right. So it turns into kind of, you can start to sense when people are moving in, in a coordinated effort against your movements, but it's, it's not perfect from, from the sky. And so, you know, you can, they, they can sense weapons or, and, and all of that kind of stuff, but it's the, the goal is not to, and, and this is what, this is what special forces is specifically trained on is unconventional warfare, right? Like the second, third order effects of excessive uses of violence are extreme, right? They're extremely high. If you, if you murder somebody's loved one, they will hate you forever. Like they might forgive you, but they will hate you forever, especially over there. And so in order to not do that, you have to be more highly trained because you have to be willing to assume more risk, which means you have to be more confident that if you do have to use deadly force, that you're going to do it. Right. So all of this stuff, it, it kind of builds to Yes, we're we're going around. How do you decipher between who who are the people that are out and who are the people? Well, if they start shooting at you, which is a really common thing, right? Or certainly was in two thousand seven, then that that that's a pretty clear signal, right? Um, but the goal is you want to use the the absolute least amount of force possible. Like this is this is not only for because that's in the the general's doctrine or the rules of engagement, that's just, you know, good for business, so to say, you know, it's good for the community where you're living in. It's good for like law and order. It's good for p- peace, right? That That's what you would rather have is you don't just want to create more enemies in life or in war. It's not a thing. It's not a good thing because the more you create, they're going to come back on you or they're going to come back on the team that comes to relieve you. And I mean, it just, it, it builds and grows. So look, it's, it's hard, you know, it's hard. If they're shooting at you, that's not a good thing. Like you, you need to respond, but you have to be willing to assume some risk. Otherwise, you know, I mean, 
you can't just you can't just indiscriminately assume no risk and, and take unnecessary life. It's it's not part of who we are as a nation. It's not part of what special forces soldiers are trained to do, and and it's not what we do. And so that's that's frankly just part of the job. Now I've heard, um, I think it was Evan Hafer from um, Black Rifle, and it was a very interesting perspective. So it just just to phrase it, if you could, regardless of politics, regardless of strategy. If you could redo from when the towers fell to, you know, the next 10, 15 years, the the theme I'm getting from him, I think it was from you in Jocko's podcast too, and I think I've even heard it from, um, you know, some other, especially the Green Beret community, is rather than put all those boots on the ground, having special operations groups being a more efficient response to, you know, the the issues that we face within these countries again not not criticizing anything but if you could redo tactic strategy from that you know inception point what would we do differently and you know to to possibly have a more successful outcome than we've had at the moment yeah i mean that's another big can of worms right <laughs> so i mean you're you're talking to a, a guy um, i'm only from the special forces community right i mean i i believe in in that way you know, I don't like tanks, no use for them. They're bullet magnets, right? You know, the, the idea of big forces moving throughout whatever, I don't want to be a part of that at all. Right now, the risk I was willing to assume and our team did assume is, you know, dead of night, worst of people send us, you know? And so it, it takes different, different kinds. I, I'm not general. I, I got out as, as, as a staff sergeant, right? That said, what, what I would look at is say, what are our goals? You know, what, what was the goal of Afghanistan? What was the goal of, of Iraq? Is it, is it, you know, to the human heart yearns to be free and we got to build a democracy over there? Are we nation building? Are we, or are we just preventing the, the, are we preventing terror from originating in Afghanistan, say, right? Are we trying to, to get it so that we're not as, deaf and blind as we were before the towers fell in a place like Afghanistan. To do that, that requires a lot less. It requires, a. if you said, hey, that's where we're going to start and let's see where it goes. Let's take our time and, and do it correctly like that. I mean, it requires a lot lower footprint for sure, right? You need basically who got sent in. You need Green Berets that can work with the local forces, the Northern Alliance. You need the CIA Who's there? You need diplomats. You need State Department folks. You need, you know, the USAID and all those things, the humanitarian efforts. You need civil affairs. You need these things. You need less killing is what you need, right? But you need it to be more targeted. And and that's that's really hard work when when you create a machine that goes to war, the, the machine starts to eat, right? And you're you're it will legitimately bad people will arise that are against your cause. This is just r- remove all of the, remove all the things you said to remove from this. Like the more that you go out and the more people who are local that die, the more people will not support your cause. Right? So you have to make that worth it. And if you kind of look at Iraq then where, where we were, I mean, you know, what was the, 
if the goal was to prevent weapons of mass destruction from leaving the the country, I mean, all right, I mean, we did that relatively quickly and then it's the pottery barn rule, right? You break it, you own it. But at at what point, these things are really hard. They're, they're almost above anyone's pay grade because nobody really has the, the solution time kind of has to present it and you got to kind of, you got to cut your losses sometimes where they are. You, you, there's only so much more you can do. I mean, look, so to answer your question more directly, yes. I mean, I would love to see a world where the army itself adopted more of the unconventional warfare approach. I mean, we're still kind of fighting the last generation's wars and you know, Vietnam was fighting World War II. They were, they wanted to send in tanks and, and big units and it didn't work, right? What worked is guys like Rich and Mac Visog working with local indigenous forces by, with, and through them. Now, can you make a big enough of a footprint? If, if you do that, well, it, it depends. What's your goal? What's your intent? How many hundreds of thousands of people do you need in, in order to achieve these goals? And if, if it's going to take 20 years, is that a good use of, of time, effort, and energy, right? When, when you say, then you pass on, you know, post 9-11 with, with Mogadishu being the only really middle ground in there of, of significant urban combat, which was very much was, was to come, right? In, in post 9-11, it, you kind of say, all right, well, we're still, we kind of learned that not, not to have tanks, but we still kind of, you know, it's like, well, what are we, what are we trying to do here in Afghanistan and, and then really in Iraq and Iraq sort of took over just because of the volume of the people. So if you kind of said, Hey, we want to, we want to have a, a good country that's not as violent and it doesn't have a, a thug of a, of a dictator who, by the way, like bad dude, he had it coming, right? I'm not here to, I'm not here to make apologies for that guy at all. Right? Like he, Saddam and Uday and Kusay, they had it coming right? At the same time, a lot of people do. And so you, you kind of say, well, like, I don't even know how to say like, did we win? Did we lose? Like, it's just, it's, it's so much more nuanced than that. But if you look at it, the army is not going to change like this overnight, right? I mean, it has to be proven time and time again. And young people have to come through the ranks in order to, to, to change things or, or, and or stronger leadership, I, I suppose. But unconventional stuff works if the intent is achievable by unconventional strategy. If, if you got to go defeat Hitler, you can't just do it with the OSS. It won't work, right? So that's probably a good example. You have to have conventional forces. You have to have, you know, you have to have the, the, the OSS Office of Strategic Services behind the scenes, you know, infiltrating with the underground and, and, and all of that, all of that stuff. So it's really about, you know, what is the goal? And, and that's so true of, of what, everything in life. Like, what are you trying to do? And then you figure out how you're going to do it. And if the what changes, then the how needs to change. And if the how is not creating the desired outcomes of the what, then change the how or, or fail fast and move on, right? So there, you can go around in circles on this all day long. But yeah, I mean, I, I think... I think there's, of course, a lot of the, the hardest part in, in all this is just the, the unnecessary loss of life. And it's not to say that those who, who fought and bled and died, that it was in vain. It, it's just to say that 
you know, it's just really hard, right? It's like those of us who were there, I mean, I'm a better person because I went to war. I know a lot of people that are better people because they went to war. It doesn't mean that we should fight more wars. It just means that this is what happened. There's some good that came out of this, right? There's some good that came out of the towers falling. There's some good that came out of young men and women in America and and the UK and our partner forces saying, send me. I want to go serve my country. This is the front lines. I mean, I, I, I would, I would be sitting here a shell of, of myself right now if I had not signed up to, to go fight that, that war, whichever war they were going to send me to, because, you know, regret's a killer, man. And and so that, that's the, that's the decision that I made. And, and I was willing to live with the outcomes, whatever they were. And for me personally, they led to, I'm a better person, which also leads to I, I owe. And that's that's a fundamental thing deep inside of me is that I just have this overwhelming feeling that that I owe and that I will always owe. Well, thank you for that. Because I, I think for me, from my perspective, I see a couple of things. Obviously, um, you know, we see from from the complete layman, from from my perspective, we see a war where we have so much when it comes to technology and, you know, number of boots on the ground and planes and all these things and struggling with these forces that are in caves and you know doing doing the uh, the terrorism basically and then we see all the the men and women coming home and it is so often it seems to be IEDs which again you know I'm assuming is from patrols so lessons learned rather than oh like you said we just keep sending people over there um it's always interesting to get this perspective from people that have been out there. Like, you know, if you could, you know, what if we drew a line in the sand and said tomorrow is when we're going to change tactics, what we do differently? Because it's not saying that it was wrong, but the same as the fire service, eventually we started using air to breathe off because our people kept dying. We go in a structure fire with no air. You know, there's a certain point where you, like you said, you, you pull back and you regroup and you figure out what's, what's better. With the the Green Berets specifically, I love that whole philosophy of the force multiplier. You go in there and you empower the the men and women who are being oppressed in those countries, but you don't have a military footprint that feels like an invasion and causes more enemies. So I'm again, I'm complete layman, but it's it's very interesting when I when I heard Evan and then you know some other people talking about that, like that's an interesting strategy. I wonder if that had been fully supported, fully equipped, more, you know, special operations people brought up, you know, would, if it happened again, would that have been a better outcome or, or the next time, would that be a better strategy? So we're not having all these people coming back, you know, with, with, with the fatalities and the, the wounds that we're seeing at the moment. The problem is, is it's really hard to train Green Berets. It takes a lot of time takes a lot of finding the right people. So you would have to have, you, you would have to have a mass call to service and you, there would have to be a very clear mission as there was after nine 11. And you would have to have leadership that was committed to that for the long haul that, you know, I mean, there was a lot of, like I signed up for revenge, man. Like I, there was a lot of the climate that wanted that and we wanted it fast. And, you know, that's, we got what we got to, to a certain extent. And it's not 
because we we rushed the, the the wrong direction. It's it's just because you know it, it was it was messy and it got messier. And if if you if you're looking for all the answers in this lifetime, you're never going to find them. You, you might find them in the next, but we're not going to find all the answers. So you know, yes, I think we would do better to to leverage the lessons of the success of, of the green berets. And in fact, the army is trying to do that. They're, they're trying to develop more people to do that job. It's just, you know, we still have, you have to put more resources into that and that becomes a strategic thing. And they have to have all those fights at the strategic level about what, what's the future of modern or, or yeah. What's the future of modern warfare look like, you know? And, and that's, you know, we have to, we have to be comfortable assuming some risks and, you know, I don't know. I, I see things out there. Like I don't see us doing any major tank led offensives anytime soon, but you know, maybe there's a lot smarter people than I am, but the, these resources that we spend over here, we can't spend over there and, and vice versa. So those are the, the kind of decisions we have to make as a country with, with our leaders. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Like I said, it's just a, such a unique perspective and, you know, very powerful thing for a lot of us to hear. Well, so you would, you know, you spent the time in Iraq. I know that you had met your wife, Emily, prior and then, and she was in the CIA. Then I'm going to get her on the podcast too. So we'll, we'll cover that side of the story. But, um, I think what's very powerful is your transition story. Um, and what was interesting and it hit me listening to the interview when I was driving up is it seems like the crisis that some young men and women leaving high school with no direction almost parallels some of our veterans, fire police, when they transition out. Because again, yeah, there's, a, there's an identity that we had in our professions. I think there's almost identity for the 18-year-old. They were a school kid. You know, that was, They didn't have to think about it. That's what I did. I'm at high school. Um, so what was your personal experience of transitioning from your dream position, you know, in, in the green berets to the next phase of your life. Yeah. So M was a, we had met the summer before sophomore year in high school. So we'd gone way back and eventually got married. Didn't date at all. Told her I loved her right before I was leaving for basic training, stuff like that. Wrote her letters every day. Right. She later said it was romantic. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, eventually I got the girl, but she was in the CIA, you know, had, had joined, wanted to serve her country as well. And we had been married for four, four plus years and had never lived together. You know, she's in her training. I'm in mine. She's in some war zone in Africa. I'm in whatever, man. It was, it was, we just kind of were, it's like you don't know you're you're always going to the well until the well runs dry, right? Like oh we're we're getting there. Skip to the end. Skip to the end. So yeah, so I got out of special forces, went to live with her at her house in West Africa. You know, she was a officially a diplomat. You know, two jobs, one paycheck, and lived with her. And um, yeah, it, it didn't really go the way that either of us had hoped. Right. It was not a perfect sort of fairy tale ending where everything's all right now because we're together. And so I was back on a one way ticket home 
three months later or so. And, you know, it was just kind of like, just about the worst thing in life is just to, to bear witness to your own life burning down in flames and feeling just helpless to stop it. Like I, I always want to do stuff to, to not fail. Like, well, I'll just work harder. Oh, well, I'll just do something more. And, you know, at some point you can't send more flowers doesn't work or another letter doesn't work or another phone calls become toxic. And, and it just gets like, at some point people have enough and you've been to the well too long and, and the well's dry. So it, it was messy that that sort of took a while. Cause we were still friends You know, she had a dog. I, I also bonded with the dog. We fought over the dog, right? I, I moved back. Eventually she comes home, you know, she's back to D back to Langley. Um, like about to start business school at, at Georgetown, which was took a long time to sort of, that was, uh, I don't know. There was a bad year in between there of not doing very much. And then I got lucky and applied to some schools and, and got in right. And, made, made the decision easy. Like, all right, I guess I'm going to go to school, you know, seemed like, like a lazy answer, but you know, cause I thought I should still be doing something awesome, but it's like, all right, I'll, I'll do this. And then I'll go get back in the fight. So yeah, life would just, it, it just wasn't right. You know, my headspace wasn't right. Things weren't clicking. The confidence is perishable. You take away the mission, you take away the, the team, you take away your loved one, you take away take, 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 right. You're, you're left kind of a shell and it, it was not a, a great environment to be in headspace wise at all. And so it was just kind of a, it was just a real challenge. And so I, I understand what it's like to go through transitions. And when you just keep, it's, it's like you just lose all your confidence. You don't, you start to, to, to assume that failure is coming, right? Because you don't, you don't have, what, what are you falling back on? You know? And when you don't have that, it, it becomes, you got to get out of that rut somehow. And you just don't know how. And you're, you're micromanaging every decision. You're micromanaging everything about everything. And it's never good enough. And so, you know, that was a, it was, it was a rough transition. Now I know the tribe that you have now we'll talk about in a little bit. The book for January was Sebastian Younger's book tribe. He's been on the show a couple of times. It's so pertinent to our professions too, but did you, were you aware of the fact that your men and your green beret, your group that you were attached to, were your tribe and did you feel that that sting of being taken away from what was you know your brothers you yeah know? i mean it got it got worse because you know they're going back to war right and so you know they went back to war and luckily you know life might be very different if if one of them had died like one of the guys i'd been with but they they didn't um that sting would come much later but the they didn't and and so at at that time it was, it was like, I just felt like I'd quit on the team, you know, like I wanted to be back and just couldn't be, wasn't. And so, you know, I sent them like a care package, 
<laughs> you sent them then, flowers and letters. <laughs> yeah, I think I sent them booze. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> or coffee. It was probably Josh would have been coffee. So, you know, it, it was, yeah, it, it's just your your life goes in a different direction and you feel kind of helpless to to get it back on course. And getting it back on course is, is hard, right? I mean, you, shame grows become ashamed of, well, how did I make these decisions to get me to this spot? And so you blame yourself and, and then you're the person that did this and, and all of that stuff. And so, you know, ultimately you, you got to kind of, when life's good, you can, you can kind of plan out a million years or however long you want to, you want to plan for, right? 10 years, 20 years, five years, whatever. And, and it's, it's easy. It's fun. You know, when, you're not in a good spot if you start doing that. It's it's really, really bad, right? Because you can't see anything good coming. Now, when things are bad, what you need to do is focus right in front of you, right? Like the five-meter target. The five-meter target for me was, all right, Java, you need to go out. Let's go out, right? Do that multiple times a day, right? Outside, right? You know, the funny thing about dogs is, no matter what the weather is, they always need to go out. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. You might as well get your board shorts on if it's pissing down my rain. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple times a day, if it's freezing cold, they still got to go out. If you don't exercise them, injure around them a lot, like if you just lock your dog in a cage all day and, you know, or whatever, the, the dog's only existence is is not exercise driven at all. They're going to they're gonna become anxious and all these things, which is the same stuff that happens to us too, by the way. But with Java, it was, he made it really clear that he needed more exercise. It's like, all right, guess we'll do a little bit more. And that, that's kind of what the catalyst was for me in, in a lot of sense was just to be more physically active. And, and I had that support structure back, which is the form of a dog. Well, it's interesting because I heard you talking about that. A couple of parallels. Firstly, that you said you wept after you left you know, your guys. And I did the same thing after I left Anaheim Fire. So I can totally relate. But the, several people on the show as well, when we think of canine therapy, you know, you're thinking of stroking the dog and all that kind of stuff, and they were just soothing as well. But it was actually that you had a responsibility now. that You had another living being other than yourself to care about. And it's it, it, that analogy of the five-meter target or the next step with that 125-pound ruck on your back, that makes perfect sense. Something that you can control that's outside of yourself that starts pushing those walls away again. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty simple. I mean, the dog loves you unconditionally. It just it has needs and it feels good to serve those needs for for your dog, right? Like pretty simple, you know, those are those are dopamine hits, if you will. And what happens is is over time, those build and build and build, but they build actually positively. Not like you're you're chasing some veneer somewhere else. You're actually doing good things and the bond grows. And it can be a dog, it can be a person, it can be, you know, your kids, it can be whatever. But if if you focus on others, good things good things happen. Not just for the others, but for yourself. And for me, the easiest thing was I, I grew up with dogs, so I was fortunate like that. But to to do that with a dog it made all the difference for me at, at that time. Cause you know, I'm going to business school and I'm kind of hiding my life and because I'm ashamed of it. Right. Like I don't want to talk about my past in the army at all. I'm not ashamed of that at all, but I don't want to talk about it. And I, I don't want to talk about my 
old marriage because that was a failure. So I don't want to talk about getting divorced because that's a failure, right? So I'll put on a veneer, right? I didn't need social media to put on a veneer. I just lived that veneer, right? And I popped into school however many times a day and like that was that. And, you know, go back and deal with Java and that's where my real, real life was. And, but it got better, right? I mean, the structure got better and just the time that you start doing things with your tribe, your tribe can be two, has to be two, can't be one, has to be two or more. And, you know, one of those can be a dog needs to be like, that's okay. Right. It's whatever the definition is, something like you would, you would share food and you would, you would defend each other. Yep. Java and I were that. Right. And so we, we had that covered and, and that it, it just, it just made all the difference. It's like you show up with a party, show up at a party with a buddy. It's just a lot easier. Right? You show up solo. It sucks. At least I, it always did for me. Right. I wasn't the guy that could just, you know, she moves his way into whatever all the time. That just never was me. And there's just some element of, of safety or confidence or, you know, something that binds us together, not just as people, but man and dog is pretty primal as well. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And I told you my, my German shepherd has definitely been that for me too. Well then, so you're, you got accepted to business school, you know, you're divorced as of now, you know, you, you, you and Java are forging your relationship. So walk me through the inception of, uh, of GoRuck and let's kind of go to, to where we are now. Yeah. So I had built Emily a, a go bag or a go ruck while she was in, in Africa. And basically it was, I, I took one of the old packs that I had in special forces and I filled some stuff, some equipment that she would need, right? Batteries, radio, knives, water, a little bit of food, change of clothes, running shoes, something like that. In case, you know, there's a coup and she's out and about and she's only got a car. And, you know, she's a, a white girl in Africa. She's not just blending in. And, and so these are, these are the realities people. Right. And, and so, you know, that's what started. And she was like, oh, you should do the go ruck thing way back when. And so it just developed very slowly over time. And I had to kind of figure out how to do the manufacturing piece. And that it was a hobby, something to do while I was at business school, but it kept costing me money, right? Cause everything does. And you know, at some point it just kind of got the, the products. I was like, these are pretty good. I don't know that this is what I want to, what I want to do with my life. I might rather go to the CIA now, which is the original goal, or I might want to go back into the military, which I really enjoyed, but you know, it was cool. This is a hobby. And so I have this business school and I'm going through that and it just, you know, there was, it's still like life wasn't clear. There was not clarity of just everything, you know, like, oh, this is just, I had this idea and I just, you know, owned it and stuck to it. But eventually I, I bought inventory and I didn't want to do uh I didn't want to do a normal internship in between my two years. I, I, mentally, I wasn't ready, right? Like I, I did not want to have to put that veneer on at some bank or consultancy or whatever the case may be, wherever you're supposed to go right in between your two years of business school and try to figure out if you can get them to hire you when you're, when you're done. I, I, I was not ready for that, right? I needed more time. And I think without 
I never sat myself down and said that. That was just like instinctual. I'm not doing that, right? Almost like I'd be outed, you know? Like I, I just, I, I needed more freedom. So I drove around to 48 states, most of them with Java and tried to sell some of the the bags that I'd created and, and had gotten manufactured by then. And, you know, didn't know anything about Google or Facebook or any, didn't know advertising and thought I could go visit small men's stores and get them to carry retail or wholesale, I should say. And, and, uh, you know, slowly build a brand up like that. And none of that plan worked. So, you know, it's like that, that was not, that was not a success story and had to kind of regroup. And, and that turned into the, the go rough challenge, which was you know, the, the first thing that sometimes you do something and you're like, wow, that just really worked. And I didn't know that that was going to be what would lead to, because if you're starting on a business, you need, you need cash and you need awareness. You, you can deal with some flex thereof, right? But if nobody knows who you are, then you have to spend cash to get people to know who you are, right? If, if it, it just, it's difficult to, to, to get yourself out there, to cut through all the noise. Oh, I can relate. <laughs> right. It's, it's a busy place. And, and so, I, you know, the challenge was such a small thing is me and 15 people. And then the next class was, you know, six people. And the next class was 30. And the next class was 30, right? These aren't big numbers of, of people per class, but we started to just, this was the energy and we were following it. And it felt really good because I based it off of special forces training. It's a rucking event. Everyone had a rucksack. We put weight in their back. They didn't know what was coming. Because it was all in the mind of of me, the cadre, right? Who's leading this this group around a city, right? I mean, it's such a small group. You don't. It's not like you have to shut the roads down for twenty people going on the sidewalk, you know, or going into a park. And then if they're like, "Hey, the park's closed," you're like, "All right, well, we're just leaving then," right? There's no published route. There's no nothing. But it was the the same sense of the team's going to work together, and you have challenges before you of of weight and time and, and all that kind of stuff. And you'll do various exercises throughout. And, and I was just figuring it out as, as I went along. I mean, I, I didn't want it to, to have a negative boot camp vibe, but I wanted it to be challenging, but really I just wanted to take pictures of the gear. I thought, Oh, this is be, this is a pretty cool photo shoot and people are going to actually kind of almost pay to do it. Get the right? models for free. <laughs> so, sorry. So you got the models for free. Yeah, exactly. They actually <laughs> kind of paid to, to show up and I'm like, all right, well, this is awesome, right? This is something. And that was, that's the hardest thing. Like what? Something got to have something. You can't just stand for nothing in the middle of the road. You're going to get hit by either this side or that side, right? Like you're, you're, you're a target to everyone. You've got to stand for something, but it doesn't mean you have to be negative, right? You don't have to be polarizing per se. You just have to stand for something and, and keep doing it. And if you're good at it, then do more of it. Come what may, you can build something around, you can build something around what you're good at and you should measure it perhaps differently than w- with your bank account. Yeah. I just had a conversation with uh, a PR guy who works with uh, Georges St. Pierre and the um, uh, Montreal soccer club, football club. And I asked him about how do we brand police and fire? And that was the same kind of thing he said. He said, you got to understand the difference between cost and value. If you tell the public, oh, it's going to cost you this much more, 
they're not going to get it. But if they understand what that investment is and how it's going to you know, pay dividends in the community, that's a completely different conversation. But you're saying the same thing, but in two different ways. So, right. So if, if you talk about, and the police is almost easier for me to talk about than, than fire because I've done, I've done police work in, in Iraq, not, not in America to be clear, but, but in Iraq, right? Like law and order, provide it to the town, right? Use deadly force, minimum, minimum possible. You, I mean, you know how much I was trained though? You know how much our team was trained? A lot. That breeds confidence. It breeds the confidence to not pull the trigger. When, when you when you cut the funds on everything on, oh, ammunition's expensive. We better like, better not have them shoot ever, right? And so what happens is is police officers are human, and you get scared, heart rates go up, and you have to you have to understand through training what it looks like. To, is this a real threat? Yes or no? What's the risk I'm I'm comfortable assuming? And then it becomes tribal in nature because you, you pass that along to each other, right? So I'm not here to sit and talk about any single police shooting or, or which get enough enough press, right? I'm just here to say that at a at a macro level, if you provide more training, you can you can expect greater outcomes. If if every single isolated incident is going to be uh, a condemnation of everyone that wears the uniform, we're never going to get anywhere though. Right. Like we, we just can't live like this. It's, it's not, it, it doesn't work. Right. Like the, to, to call for the removal of like the police force. I mean, it's, it's, it's anarchy. Like this is, it's, it's so naive and, and it doesn't mean it has to be more quote militarized. I mean, you can send in, really effective peacekeepers or there, there's other versions that you can send. You just need to train them more, right? And, and I'm for you. I'm for, hey, train them more, pay them more, right? And, and do that and you won't need as many and they'll be better. And, you know, prestige within society will increase, right? Which it, it is, it's, it's, you know, a specific, you know, fire is not taking any hits, right? But, but police has a ton, and, you know, th- these are things that, that need to get worked out in, in a generational way, but they're not going to get worked out unless you actually elevate the quality of the, elevate the quality of the people that are there through training and standards. You have great people that step forward that say, I want to serve my community. Let me put the uniform on, right? Now what we owe them is just, we owe them the ability to be even better. Absolutely. Well, it's funny as well because- defund the police was a very public thing but defund the fire service is a very behind closed doors in the shadows thing and to just illustrate you hear all the time of fire stations being browned out or closed down even you know or or there's not four firefighters on a rig now there's only three so it happens as well but it's not from push from from the public per se it's actually a political tool oh we're going to cut the budget we're going to cut the budget but it's the same thing. And this is why we've ended up with fire departments and police departments that have no annual fitness standards, whose, whose hiring practices are very, very easy to walk through the door, which, you know, but I've talked about a lot is just like you guys, those professions, we need to have the polar opposite. We need to have a crucible that we have to pass to get hired. And in return, as you mentioned, there is the support with the training and the equipment so that we can be extremely good at our job and obviously, you know, paid properly as well. But 
the the more you lower the bar, the more issues we're going to see in the community. But but you got to take it from the top down too, right? You have to inspire people to get more people to want these jobs. It's it's more holistic, right? It's not just there's not just one thing to focus on. I mean, where's the JFK moment? Like why aren't why aren't people doing this, right? That's not what what your country will do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Like this is just not a thing that that is a drumbeat at all right now. And it, and it just, it needs to be, it needs to be a recurring drumbeat. But these, these kinds of leaders like that don't come along very often. And that's just the nature of, that's the nature of the beast. I mean, 9-11 opened up a lot of people to service. And I think that we'll feel those effects for generations. My kids will be exposed to to service and, and why it's important a lot more than I was, you know? And so some things take time, but we, I, I agree with everything you said. There's just a greater need for even more inspiration as to why. So it, it is what your, your, your other, other guests said about, you need to get somebody, somebody needs to lead from the front in terms of the value proposition. And really elevate what this is like. Elevate the brand, even brand, right in quotes, of of what fire service is. Why it's such a crucial part of the community. I mean, figure out a way to get people to know their firemen, right? I mean, I'll give you one example. I've never been able to to execute on this, but there was a guy in that I knew through, you know, one of these good ideas guys that you find and and and. I'm like, that is a good idea. He's like, you know, you, you need to figure out a way. It's a win-win because if every fire station in the country held community rucks out of the fire station, you would get the community to come to the fire station for physical fitness. That's a win. The firefighters would get some physical fitness, social fitness with the community. That's a win. And, you know, at the same time, you'd be these barriers would be going down where people would actually know their, maybe those people would then say, Hey, maybe we should pay, maybe you'd learn a little bit more about it. Now, when in talking with you, reading your book, it's like, well, already kind of overworked, already kind of underpaid. So now you want to toss in a community rock. Who's going to like, who's going to like, what time are we slicing that out of and stuff? But, you know, so look, these things are really hard, but there needs to be some way that people understand what this is. And the police is getting more attention right now just for, for obvious reasons. At, but I don't think that, I think there are solutions that are out there. I think the people in America are very, very generous. I mean, look at just donations to nonprofits that they come from, come from people in our country. If there's a cause that needs money, people donate. We just don't understand the connective tissue between the, the service class, those who serve this country and the freedoms that we, that we live with, that we just, you know, and everybody says we take for granted. I, I don't mean this in, in some kind of finger pointing way to, to everybody out there. I mean this from the standpoint of like, we just don't know those people. Too many people don't know people who serve like this in this capacity. They just don't, they don't understand the the, the tax of the job on the people. And, you know, like, I, I don't, I, I think if, if you sort of said like with so many things like, well, you know, this is, this, 
we're going to add this tax. It's going to go to the kids in education. Well, then people are going to get skeptical. Of it. They're going to be like, but the teachers unions, right? And you say, oh, this tax is going to go to the, or this percentage of the budget, it's going to go to this. And it just, everything gets reduced down to the least common denominator. And, you know, I, I, I think there's a better way to do it. It's, it's certainly more holistically and it involves really hard, broad, big conversations, all of which you are having on a recurring basis. And I think that's, that's part of fighting the good fight. Well, speaking of that, so changing hearts and minds, you had a group up here last week who are very near and dear to my heart, which is the Give Team. Yeah, Brad Mason come up. Um, and that was actually the last ruck I did, which is the July Perry March that we did for a, kind of the anniversary of the Okoe Massacre. Um, and I know that you're now um, putting together something with the Selma March. So tell me about your interaction with the Give Team and then tell me about the, the Selma March. Yeah. So the gift team, my wife, Emily runs the community stuff. So she's kind of the the point of contact with, with those guys. I'm, I'm fortunate when she's like, Hey, it's Sunday morning. The gift team's at headquarters. Let, let's go. I'm like, all right, awesome. Let's go. So yeah, synced up with them, met them a couple years ago, I guess now. And somehow there was a, a guy big into go rock a rocker that was in their crew that pinged us together, right? Hey, you guys should do something together. This is about underprivileged minority youth in, in Orlando. There's this great, awesome leader there and go rucks about bringing people together, building bridges and being active, push yourself, challenge yourself. And, and so, you know, we talk about, they were here, I was giving them this sort of idea of concentric circles, right? And it, it's like, we have so much in common. I don't know what it's like to grow up as, as a black kid. I, I don't, right? I, I never will. What I do know is that we have a lot more in common than what our differences are. And, you know, we, we go out and it's like, you know, there's, there's a couple sandbags we're passing around. It's like, Hey guys, you guys like to work out. You guys like to come together. You, you do all these various events and challenges and, you know, we can focus on that. And that allows us to talk to each other as people. And, you know, I mean, our nation has a lot more in common. I mean, it, it sounds trite and that's fine. I'm cool. I'm cool to say those such, such trite things. It just, the, the really hard part is not the differences of, I don't know what it's like to grow up as an African-American, especially underprivileged in anywhere, right? It, it's more that there's no bridges being built in the real world, right? People are retreating to their corners and so that's where the common ground happens when you're face to face. So I don't, I don't mean this in a trite way, like, oh, we have so much in common. I just mean it as, look, it's really hard if you disagree with somebody. If you're out, say you go work out with them for an hour and then you start talking about something, you're, you're not going to behave like, like people do on, you know, the, the troll farms of the, the Russian bot farms on Facebook, picking all these, these just horrific fights online right? Which a lot of people throw, throw some gasoline on that fire too. You just don't behave like that. You don't behave that way around people that you do something with. And so that's where we have these shared things like, oh, you like to be outside with with a ruck on? Oh yeah, let's bring a sandbag. Let's, let's go out there and talk about life and how's, what's going on in your world, stuff like that. And it, it's just such an underrated thing. 
you know, everyone's staring at phones and stuff. And this is just a, a fact. And we need to get back to the, can't even believe it's it's viewed as almost hard work, but like the hard work of of talking with each other. Oh, it's exhausting in the real world. You know, <laughs> no, it's crazy though, and I think that's just it—the fostering the community. And you said about you know not knowing what it's like growing up. Of course, it is very different. I mean, all our, our you know, life paths are different, but as you mentioned, what's so crazy is that that's that's a small percentage. What we have in common, and you mentioned it the same with, with in Iraq. You know, are you a parent? Yeah. Do you play with your kids? Yeah. Do you make them food? Yeah. Do you like, you know, relaxing time? Do you, you know, do you kiss your wife? I mean, all these things. Yes, we all do that. That's the human experience. The pigmentation, the fact that I'm opaque because I'm from England or, you know, black because I'm from South Africa or whatever. It's, it's kind of, that's the, the cover. That's it. So what I found with that community element, I think, is what draws people to Gora, to Spartan, to CrossFit is people just come and, and, and whether it's the Green Beret selection process or the, the Fire Academy or doing Murph at CrossFit Iron Legion in Ocala, you're suffering side by side and all of a sudden you're not any of those things. Sebastian Junger talks about that at the boxing gym. He said, you're not the, you know, the white author or the black kid from Brooklyn. You're the kid with the good left hook the guy with the good uppercut, you know, you just, it's all that shared experience. So I think, again, you know, with, with what you're doing and what a lot of those other, you know, organizations I've said is we're putting the community back where it's missing and you are building bridges. Like you said, you're connecting these people, making them realize that we're not all these colors and creeds and sexual orientations. We're all mud runners, ruckers, you know, whatever well, it is. Even more powerful is we're not, preaching to them we're just bringing them together and then they f they figure this out for themselves i mean that's the green beret mission right i mean you, you bring people together you empower them because you know at, at some point we're just we're just a company with a headquarters right to, to someone we, we send emails out you know but the real power the real magic is at the community level and that's that's a really that's a really hard thing to to integrate into any business unless that's literally who you are and, and what you care about every single day, day in and day out. And so, you know, that's who we are and that's what we care most about. And so we, we weave that into our, our lives because it matters to us. I mean, there's other ways to make money. There's lots of ways to make more money probably, but this is what's really passionate to, to us. This is the hill I'll die on, right? Like, come what may, this is the hill I'll die on. Like I'm gonna, I will feel good about life if, if this is the the trajectory, you know, life on my deathbed, so to say, and and so it's it's rewarding and and it's fun, and I wake up with mission and purpose in my life, and and you know we get to hang out with some cool people. Absolutely. Well, as a side note from that, another area where we've lost community, obviously, is this last year. So you know there was a lot of forced isolation, and regardless again of the whole specifics with the virus. We found ourselves in an environment where a lot of the gyms were closed. I disagree with it completely personally, but that, you know, each to their own. But in my gym, CrossFit Iron Legion, um, one of our members, Mike Oliveros, who's done loads of your events um, and just a huge, huge, the fan is the wrong word. He just, he's so excited when he comes back and tells us about them. Um, him and our owner um, from Iron Legion, Ted, have actually 
they started rocking while the gym was closed. And again, that it was it was amazing to see that all the ingredients that we know make you more resilient to whatever disease, fresh air, nature, community, exercise, were all in that. So it went back to simplicity of what you were talking about, throwing a pack on your back, getting together in a group, socially distanced, of course, God forbid you get closer than six feet, and, uh, you know, and just walking outside. So even when it was the middle of the pandemic and it wasn't a, a specific go rock event, the influence of what you've built bled over into our gym and kept our members having a purpose and, and, and a place to be at a certain time until we were able to open our, our doors again. Well, that's good. I mean, the, the, the basics are going to be the basics for human beings for a really, really long time, like maybe forever, you know, I mean, time outside, time together, do something kind of challenging. If you're going to, going to do it, you might as well make it a little bit, little bit challenging, right? I mean, you get better that way. So, you know, whether, whether billions of people or millions of people end up rocking for, for the long term, or, you know, I don't know, we'll see. I mean, our, our goal, we believe rocking should be bigger than running. So we're working towards that because it is such a community builder. And I don't think there's a better way to build community from, from a fitness standpoint that's as scalable as, as rocking, certainly. So, you know, a lot of people have, have picked it up. What I hope endures out of this is just the, the memories of, of time outside with other people where, where we did that and, and do that, find some way to do that. Right. And if you do more of that over time, then you've got your tribe. Then you can go do lots of stuff together. You, you know, like-minded people, if, if instead of complaining about all the people who are trapping themselves behind Facebook, it's kind of like, you know, just go be, just go live your life, live your life in a way that you, you want to and can with other people. And outside is, is a great place to do, do adventures outside are better. Beautiful. Well, I know you've bled into the fire service too. So one of my, one of my friends out on the West coast was telling me that he, he's done a bunch of rocks. He, he's bought a bunch of your gear to the point where, um, his wife said, Oh, by the way, your Prada, but your man Prada bags on its way. Cause she got the confirmation that the, the pack was, <laughs> was being sent to him. Another one of my friends, Eric is going to be doing your, um, selection, which I'm correct me if I'm wrong is your hardest ruck at this point. Um, so for people listening, tell me about the ruck side and then also the, the tactical side, which is, which is the side I want to start exploring. Yeah. So we have all different kinds of events now. We, a thousand events a year is what we put on since in the last year we put on six, 700, right? Before that it was a thousand events a, a year and they're all led by current former special operations guys. I mean, rucking is the foundation of it. So there's some team building events called the Go Ruck Challenge. You're with a guy the whole time, you know, builds a small small group into a team through shared pain, misery, adversity, all that all that sort of fun jazz. We have other events that are just rucking, meaning pick your distance, 5k to 50 milers. The the 50 miler was humbling for me, the first one I did, it's a 20 hour time, time cap. And, and the weight is low, right? It's 20 pounds. We're not talking anything crazy here. So it is, uh, you know, we, it's just getting people out and getting people out and rocking. We we've done some other events that, that also have some PT elements. So, you know, do it's called cloverleaf, but you do say three hero wads and there's a movement in between each and we're blasting Metallica or something fun while, while we do the, the wads together. 
And, you know, then we have some significantly harder events. Selection is, is kind of the, the pinnacle of that. I mean, it's the toughest endurance event in the world. Pass rates under 1%. It's 48 plus hours. You're not going to sleep. You're, you'll eat a little bit, but only towards the end. Um, you know, you're just going to do work. That's what you're going to do. It's, it's, it requires a ton of dedication to actually do it. You can't just roll out of bed. I don't care who you are and do it. So that event's out there. That's kind of was born because the community wanted the pinnacle test. So, so we gave it to them. Firearms has been kind of a grassroots effort for us for, for a really long time. Um, trained up a lot of the, the community asked us for it, you know, as, as at the core it's green berets are at this company and and then there's seals and then there's, you know, other force reconnaissance Marines. And then there's, you know, some of the, the, the tactical guys in the air force, et cetera. Right. And so of course we have these, these tactical skills. And, and so we've been putting on firearms events for years. I mean, the year before COVID, we put on 176 tactical events all over the all over the country, and and basically, we're comfortable training others how to do these things. That this is what we did, and this is this is the mission of the Green Berets, and so that's the culture that the firearms, the tactical side of the house, uh, adopts at at these events. So we're able to progress probably more quickly than someone who hasn't trained other fighters like, like we have, and, and we do it safely. I mean, safety is always the the first priority, but, um, you know, it's brilliance in the basics, focus on the fundamentals, shoot, move, and communicate as you, as you advance a little bit more, there's, there's day events, there's night events, there's levels. And, and we're, we're working on getting out some, some really premier, premier, um, physical endurance type tests that are, that are based on tier one special operations units, what, what they would be like, 48 hours, live out of your rucksack. You're going to shoot a thousand rounds. It's, it's a competition and you're going to bivouac on, bivouac on site. And there's no holiday in bagel bar waiting for you in between the days. There's no, none, none of that stuff, right? Like combat is gritty. And if you ever find yourself in a situation where you're, you're fighting for your life, it's gritty. It, it's, it's, it's going to happen not at a time of your choosing and you have to be ready. And so we want to inspire and, equip and challenge people to to be ready beautiful so for people listening where can they find all the the go rock events and the the merchandise and and tribe tell me about tribe as well yeah so the i mean the property goruck.com is kind of our, our merchandise it's it's rucks and sandbags and and stuff like that goruckevents.com is where all of the the events are tribe is our it's an extension of our community. We just wanted to kind of harden it. And every month there's a, there's a challenge of sorts. There's a workout, there's some rucking, rucking requirements. There's, there's a book every month. And then there's, there's an additional tasking in February. It was to write four letters handwritten to, to other people. One of them should be to make amends, right? I mean, warrior poet shit, you know? And, and so the community wants to do more. They want to feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. And and so we want to kind of provide some organization and some inspiration to that. And so you're in a patch, it's a cool patch, you know, that, uh, if, if, if you do it, if, if you're a part of it and, and there's other, there's other perks yet to, yet to be revealed, but it's, you know, it's resolutions don't work, right? Everybody knows this, but being part of a tribe, being part of a community and being accountable to them and and so if you've got one workout a month that you've got to go do, I mean, get some local buddies and go do it, right? I mean, everybody can do this. If you got a 
ruck a couple five milers a month, okay, go do it, right? It's just, hey, this isn't meant to, to suffocate. It's just meant to provide some structure and then just build out around that, right? So we, we're, we're really enjoying it though. Beautiful. And tell me about your new book. How Not to Start a Backpack Company. Yeah, written, well, much like you had kind of started started that process before the the pandemic hit. And then I just kind of, I had to pour my passion into something that was a creative outlet for whatever reason. And so I went back and wrote a tale of the early days and it's, it's not a veneer on, you know, I had this idea and it went perfectly and look at me. It's, it's the opposite of that. It's like all the mistakes that I made, but it's not a, Hey, here's a one, two, three list. It's, it's based on a journal that I, that I kept in that summer of 2010 when I drove around to 48 States almost all of them with Java and just the adventures that I got into and the people that I met and just how taxing it was on me emotionally as well as I was like going through divorce and all that stuff. So, yeah. Beautiful. Well, before we go to the closing questions, the divorce, you ended up with We did. I remarried my ex-wife. So let, let's connect those dots before yeah. we move to the It's great. The end. Say 2014, we, we got back together. Yeah. So we've been, oh, years sneak up on you <laughs> well congratulations for that and i'll get more from from emily when we talk <laughs> yeah. um so the first of the closing questions is there a, um uh let me start that again that distracts me for a second um is there a book that you love to recommend it can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different yeah so i mean there's a there's a few books that i that i do love um you know i loved uh Atlas shrugged as a kid, but I also loved man's search for meaning as a kid, right? All, all of the Hemingway books. I love sapiens. That, that, that'll, that'll probably keep you going for, for a bit. <laughs> that are some great books there. What about a, a movie and or documentary? Let's see a movie. Uh, Pulp Fiction was always my favorite growing up. Um, Black Hawk Down was kind of the first thing I saw that looked real, but the, the, the best thing I think ever on, on TV is Band of Brothers ever. Like if, if you haven't seen that series, I mean, it's just, it, it will put life in perspective for you. It, it's just, it's, it's really, really, it's a really amazing story. And they did such a, it, it's a gift that we have that series. Absolutely. It's just a shame they're all, they've all passed away now. I would love to have interviewed some of them. Well, speaking of that, so is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah, I mean, you got to have Roger Sparks on. Beautiful. Like he's, you know, Air Force PJ, Bulldog Bite. You know, he was a Force Recon Marine before that. You know, he was then he was a cadre there, and he's he's another level. You'll you'll really like talking to him. Fantastic. All right. Well, then the last question before I make sure everyone knows where to find you specifically, what do you do to decompress these days? So, you know, balance is that eternal thing that we all struggle with, right? I mean, I, if left to my worst devices, some, in some ways my best, in some ways my worst, isn't it funny how that works? Like I, I can, I can work until I drop, right? Like, you know, that's just kind of me. And my my kids have been hugely balancing. Emily Emily forces it. She's better about that. It's like, hey, we're we're doing this thing at this time, and we have our we have our stuff set up, and it really works for us, right? Like, 
like it's really, it's really good, right? It's not always natural for me. Like I feel guilty about a whole weekend without working. That that's the psyche, you know. At, at a baseline level, I, I don't sit in traffic. My office is four miles from here. Almost every single day, I I rock either. It's usually here with Monster, my dog, who you may have heard in the background barking. Um, I I either I either ruck to work or, or sometimes from work. And, you know, there's just, um, I read Mattis's book. And the thing that struck me is it was sort of a, a regret he made in passing. As he said, I didn't, I didn't give myself enough time to just kind of think, to, to take the time and just go someplace and think or, you know, go for a walk and think. Well, for me, it happens with, with a ruck on and it's, and it's a four mile one way. And sometimes I'm like, man, I, I got to get to work faster. And, and some days you really do have to, but, but not most, you know, like sometimes I, I make phone calls other days. I, I don't, I listen to m- the music that I like and I just sort of zone out or I think about this or, or that. And, and, you know, the rucksack's not super light, right? So there's a physical element to that as well. And, and it's, it's really, it's outside, you know, it's, it's by myself except for monster. So for that part, it works. And then, and then, you know, I have other structured things like Friday morning with, uh, with our, our team at go rock right out front. It's, we meet up at six 30 in the morning and, and toss some sandbags around. Life's good. You know, um, we sweat and we drink coffee and talk about our lives, right? Makes coming to work more fun. You know, I do the same thing in my, in my driveway, Saturday afternoons, Sunday afternoons, three 30, like guys from the neighborhood. Well, I'm really consistent about it when I'm in town. Sometimes by Sunday, I don't want to do it. doesn't matter. Right? Like it's, it's not about the actual workout. It's like do less weight then right? Or whatever, if you're feeling sorry for yourself, like talking to me, right? It's, it's just, it's about kind of being, being there and doing that. And, and, uh, those kind of grounding things where I'm just around other people and it allows, allows me to get out of the, the headspace of just the triage of problems that, that are work. And it just like, that's the decompression because, you know, if something's going well at GORUCK, like I'm not really that involved with it. Like it's just, it's, it's problem triage all the time or it's deadline triage, you know? So it's like, you got to do this and this and this. And so there's a few passion projects as well. Tribe actually being one of them, but you know, there's just problems all day long. And I don't think that, I don't think my life is too dissimilar to, to others. There's always problems, both real and perceived. And how do we, how do we take the time to not focus on those? It, it will make the solutions better. They will come more clearly if you just don't focus on them for these periods of time. And, but to do that, you have to, you have to go do something that will allow you to do that. Right. And so th- that's what those are for me, you know, like time with a rock, time with the dog, you know, this morning I was playing hooky with Ryan on the beach until, you know, just before you, you came here. So, you know, it's, Cause he's at home and M had stuff to do here at work. And, and it's like, it's great, right? Try to enjoy the moments. You know, I, I had him on my lap and I'm like, Ryan, you know, the day's going to come when you don't want to jump up on my lap to put, you know, your sweatshirt on so we can go to the park and you don't want to do all these things. And Mike, so I'm just going to cherish these moments that we have now. Absolutely. Be present. 
Beautiful. All right. Well, then for people listening, if they want to find you online, reach out, where are other places aside from the GoRuck sites? Yeah. I mean, Instagram is probably the one that I'm on more than, than the rest. It's Jason J. McCarthy on, on Instagram. And I, much like you, I, I read all my DMs and do my damnedest to get back to them. If, if there's not like 47 people on the thread with unrecognizable names and, and links and offers, then I'm, I'm selling usually, followers. Yeah. I'm usually pretty good about it. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, Jason, I just want to say thank you. I mean, firstly for having me here and you know, you, you gave me some go rock stuff and we, we took it for a ride. Um, but you, the, the impact I've seen, like, you know, internationally through, even when I posted today, my phone was ringing off the hook the moment I said that I was coming up here. So Thank you for being so generous and hosting me today. Thank you for having me on your podcast too. But uh, And thank you for what you've done because you, as with many of the guests I've had before, took that burning desire to serve and then and then carried it on past transitioning out of the military. So thank you again for being so generous with your time today. Thanks for having me, man. It's been nice to, nice to meet you as, as you should meet someone face to face. <laughs>